Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Nick Grabe. Um, I'm going to uh, be speaking about a, um, a author who was immensely popular um, 120 years ago, and for 10 years, no one knew who he was. And when, in 1916, it was finally revealed that he was a person who was famous for something entirely different, many people had difficulty accepting that it was true. Uh, so this this guy, or maybe we shouldn't even say guy, because originally when people read his stuff, David Grayson. So this was my introduction to David Grayson was, I have this series of books called the University Library. And one of the days happened to be in January, we're in January, <clears throat> was an excerpt from one of his things in a small essay he'd written. And I really liked it. And so I thought, man, I got to find out more about this. But instead of finding out more about it, I'm like, let me go find someone who knows about David Grayson to talk to them. And uh, so that's that's how I stumbled onto you. And and, and it's in and the reason that no, I stumbled on him was that he lived for the second half of his life, uh, basically his uh, retirement in my town, Amherst, Massachusetts. And uh, his uh, the David Grayson papers are stored in the um, the library here, and I have enjoyed. Uh, going over them and reading some of the thousands of letters that people wrote to a, a fictional person. Clearly his stuff resonated uh, showing up in newspapers at the time. And it's interesting also because um, nobody today, I bet no one listening to this podcast has heard the name David Grayson would be my guess. And they certainly didn't know. It's so interesting. There was such an a feeling of connection to this fake name, this person who was writing this stuff. And then the experience people had of like having this almost basically a celebrity. And then the celebrity is unmasked. And then that level of disappointment that people were disappointed. They'd, they'd read into this character who had been writing these things and were disappointed to find out who David Grayson was. So I don't know, maybe you could give in a nutshell, who was David Grayson appearing to people as, as a writer? Okay. And then well, what was the revelation? David Grayson um, appeared as a, uh, a well-read man who has left the frenetic pace of the city for the simple pleasures of country life. And uh, he likes to go around walking around visiting people and uh, meeting strangers and preaching a gospel of hospitality, kindness, and trustworthiness. The, the, the stories are part essay, part philosophy, part quiet humor in a colloquial style. And they were immensely popular. Um, uh, the, the books sold two million copies. They were translated into many languages, including French, Norwegian, even Braille. Um, at one point, you know, one of his books went through 20 printings in um, England. Um, and... Um, he received thousands of letters uh, from people. Here is a um, representative sentence from uh, his first book. Um, okay. The great point of advantage in the life in the country is that if a man is in reality simple, if he love true contentment, it is the place of all places where he can live his life most freely and fully, where he can grow. The city affords no such opportunity. 
Indeed, it often destroys by the seductiveness with which it flaunts its carnal graces, the desire for the higher life which animates every good man. Okay, now that is the fascinating thing that the whole vision of this character was someone who had been disillusioned by the life of the city and was going to the country. I thought it was particularly charming the way I'm again, to me, as someone who's been a journalist and you as a journalist, the ways he asks questions, just his curiosity about running into someone, everyone else regards this person as boring. Us uh, is boring. He's like, eh, maybe not. Let me ask a question and ask another question. Before you know it, he's like full of wonder and curiosity. And in this case, it's a person who's gardening in the city. So he's feeling the oppressiveness of the city, but then he starts recognizing the beauty in the weeds. He starts recognizing the beauty in the way this gardener is sort of cultivating life in this place that barely gets enough sun and just asking him lots of questions about it. So it's interesting in his kind of extolling of the country life, the excerpt and the only essay I've written is the one where he's in the city finding maybe touches of the country in the city. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think of uh, the um, the Will Rogers quote uh, regarding David Grayson. I never met a man I didn't like. <laughs> that is, at, and that was the fun. That was the exciting thing about the character. Now that I would take it as a person, now I take it as a character. The fact that that was the character's attitude. Everybody has something interesting to say, and everybody has something interesting they're doing. And I thought that was a very and, compelling you know, attitude. I, I find really interesting the impact that uh, David Grayson had on people. Um, especially students, um, the nostalgic elderly, um, um, invalids. Um, here's, um, here's, here's one thing that uh, someone wrote yeah. to David Grayson. To bring quietness to the heart in these days of storm, hopefulness in the heart of discouragement, some sane practical wisdom into the fog of madness, and to do these with the sunniest, sweetest, most delicate humor. Why, what could a man want more? Do you think there was, eventually maybe we'll talk a little bit about the disappointment of the people who loved the, this nom de plume, David Grayson, and then were disappointed by the reality of who it was. Do you think there's... Um, in some ways, it's a it was a bit of a cheat. When you present yourself as an actual person, people invest that with some level of human connection, as opposed to he could have written the essays and said, here's a character I made up. The way, you know, Benjamin Franklin makes up stuff, Mark Twain makes up stuff, and there's not a real person, and we know it's not a real person, so we don't kind of invest ourselves fully in it. Do you think it was fair that that maybe some of the criticism that happened later where people said, I felt betrayed – is because it was presented as this is a real person. Well, he was a real person, and he was uh, a real farmer in my town. Um, yeah. And but but after it was revealed who he was, people would actually knock on his door in my town in Amherst and say things like, "You know, you're not supposed to have a daughter." Oh, so they were just disappointed how the real life person really didn't even match up with the biographical you know, details. Just to give you a sense of how big an impact David Grayson had, there were clubs all over the country modeled after David Grayson's principles. They called themselves Graysonians. There were at least six imposters 
people who claim to be David Grayson, one of them convinced a woman to marry him based on her thinking that he was David Grayson. There was Wait, a, no, did they stay married? I hope not. The, <laughs> the, there was a writer in Maine named David Gray who had to issue a statement saying that he wasn't David Grayson. And there was actually an attorney in Atlanta named David Grayson who issued a statement saying, I didn't write these things. So, uh, so gradually, um, the secret uh, came out. There's a, there was a comparable situation a couple of years ago. You know the writer Elena Ferrante? She's very popular. Um, and, Did, but no, that was a suit. What happened? And uh, the, the, the actual writer was outed um, and wasn't happy about it because she wanted to stay um, uh, anonymous. But um, the, the, uh, starting in about uh, 2013, the, the secret started to uh, leak out. Even the person who wrote the illustrations for the Grayson books didn't know who he was. <laughs> um, and... Um, uh, there was an English professor at the University of Kansas, you'll appreciate this, who... I will, very near here, half an hour. Uh, ...who asked his students to do an analysis of um, the writings of David Grayson and compare them to the writings of a famous muckraking journalist um, to find out whether there was a similarity. And... Um, it's like the kind of thing we'd ask AI to do today. Yeah, right. like, I have a room full of undergraduates. Yeah. And, you know, um, a woman uh, from Nebraska wrote to um, the publishers, you are doing readers a flagrant injustice unless you tell them who David Grayson is. We can't wait another year to find out. Some of us will explode. <laughs> And a man in Seattle wrote to Grayson, I love this, are you real or imaginary? <laughs> uh, both? Neither? Not sure? That's a, hmm. so, um, uh, but be, so before the revelation, I am curious just from you as a having spent many years as a writer, as a journalist, do you think there's any, in people from the, it's a spectrum from pure fiction where we all know, we may not know the writer, but it's all accepted. This is pure fiction all the way to highly an attempt at highly unbiased, objective nonfiction written with total transparency about who I am, what I know, what my background is, what I've studied <clears throat> in that spectrum. Is there anything unfair about people who present as this is a real person, but it's not a real person? Or is it sort of all's fair when we're talking about literature or just op-ed columns in, in newspapers? Well, this goes back to um, the origin of David Grayson, which is okay. in 1906 at a magazine called the American Magazine. Or was it McClure's? I forget. Anyway, um, and... Uh, they were doing something that I'm familiar with and the editors were sitting around saying, what the heck are we going to put in the next issue? <laughs> and yeah, one of them raises that. his hands and says, 
well, I've been writing these sketches, you know, over the past 10 years, and I can pull them together. And um, but I don't want to confuse readers with my real name because, you know, I've been writing these uh, muckraking stories about U.S. steel and, uh, and labor unrest. And um, that's he just picked the name David Grayson out of a hat because it sounded sort of <laughs> inoffensive. Um, it, it is very inoffensive. David Grayson. Oof. So you want to. Want to get on to uh, who David Grayson really was? Uh, sure. Uh, um, but what I want to, I will haunt that last question just a touch because you mentioned he didn't want to associate the two things. It makes me think a lot about the modern sense on social media where people are trying to navigate what's my private self, what's my public self. So I feel like everyone navigates this question that he had about David Grayson, which was, the public-facing face of me, I don't want to confuse these two aspects of who I really am. So I'm going to try to, you know, this is, I have my name branded as a muckraking investigative journalist. I don't want to brand that same name in this other way with this other part of who I am. I think it's, I don't know if it's good or bad. It's a little sad that those couldn't be integrated in the public eye. So I guess we're going to find out what happens when those two things are integrated into the public eye. Yes, well, um, the, the, um, the, the man who actually wrote the David Grayson books um, was named Ray Stannard Baker. And he is a very interesting person in, in his own right. Um, and one of the interesting things is that he was a little jealous of his alter ego. You know, he thought that the stories he was writing about U.S. steel and, and labor unrest were a lot more important than these silly little country sketches. Um, yeah. And um, um, here's an interesting quote from Book News Monthly back in 1916. There was an apparent discrepancy between the character of David Grayson, the idler by Woodland Brooks, the poet of the open road, the philosopher of that deepest contentment in life, which may be had by the lowest or the highest, and that of Ray Standard Baker, the skilled journalist, the investigator thick in the hurly-burly of life. Um, so Ray Standard Baker was born in the Midwest in, um, in uh, Michigan uh, in 1870, and he um, uh, worked as a uh, reporter in Chicago for a while um, and um, wound up uh, being a, uh, a writer for a magazine called McClure's that also uh, included pretty well-known people like Ida Tarbell and uh, Licken Steffens. Um, and um, he actually was the first prominent white journalist to write about uh, the racial divide in America in uh, 1908. Um, in 1914, um, while he was still, um, while his identity as David Grayson was still a secret, mm -hmm. he was asked by Woodrow Wilson to travel to Europe to uh, be a kind of unofficial envoy about the tensions going on over there um, at the beginning of World War I and report back to him. And um, Baker, uh, after the war, was the head of the press bureau at the Versailles Peace Conference. And then 
um, he wrote a multi-volume biography of Woodrow Wilson that won the Pulitzer Prize in 1940. When Baker died in 1946, his death was front page news in one New York newspaper. So he was a pretty well-known guy. Yes. And very compart so and a person who'd seen visions of everything. So international affairs, diplomacy, war, wartime diplomacy, uh, politics, uh, racism, uh, domestic strife, all, all the nasty stuff that happens in cities with industrializing. Okay, so he'd seen it all on yes, in one respect, and that was everybody's vision. Of but 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 he grew up in the country uh, on the right. frontier, um, associating with you know, rogues and native tribes and, um, yeah. and he yearned for, um, a country life while he was living in New York city. And, um, before he moved to my town Amherst, um, he, uh, tried several other places, uh, several other, uh, more rural or rural areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any idea why he finally settled on your city? Yes, I do. Uh, his brother uh, was the president of um, Massachusetts Agricultural Institution in Amherst, which much later became the University of Massachusetts. Okay. I, I, do you think? I think that's why it makes sense. Do you think that sense of so is this before were there prominent universities in or near Amherst at the time he moved there? There was Amherst College. Okay. And do you was, think that was an do you think that was an appeal? Did he have interactions with the college or no? When he retired or no, like rural no. life, you know. Another interesting thing about uh, David Grayson is that yeah. um, in literary circles, um, we are best known for the poet Emily Dickinson, and okay. thousands of people come to Amherst every year from all over the world to visit the house that Emily Dickinson lived in. But what's interesting is. That a hundred years ago, nobody knew about Emily Dickinson, and David Grayson was called Am America's most popular philosopher. <laughs> Man! But today, nobody reads David Grayson. Right. But I think they should. I think that David Grayson has something to uh, teach us. Well, again, I would say in a few pages, at the very least, his his attitude of approaching human beings, this character, uh, it was very, was very compelling. Um, and I think people struggle with it today. I think he looks at people in a less utilitarian way in those stories. And I guess I would have to read more. It sounds like there's a lot about simple living, a lot about why rural is better than city. Again, it's interesting. They could have picked anything for this set and they picked the one David Grayson story that happens to take place or one of the few in the city where he's looking for something nice to find in the city, as opposed to his later books deal with farming a lot, you know, yeah. <laughs> he was a beekeeper. Um, he had at orchards. So the, so the big revelation when people had, he already moved to the country when the revelation was made. So had he already moved to this next stage of his life? Yes. He, David Grayson started in 1906. Um, Baker moved to Amherst in 1910 and then um, the, um, the, the revelation was in 1916. 
and what were the reactions to the revelation. So some people are really excited to finally be able to put, that's the real person behind it. And I don't think that was necessarily the reaction that he got, that everybody was happy to find out who David Grayson was. Well, um, for some people, it was it was like David Grayson was the real writer and uh, Baker was the imposter. Oh, geez. Um, he wrote this in his notebook. Scarcely a day passes when I do not receive letters or visits asking for autographs, inquiring about first editions, demanding information or merely praising. It is a weariness, yet somehow it reassures me somehow. My work has not been wholly lost. People there are who enjoy it. And once in a blue moon, I make an understanding friend. But, but at the same time, he wishes that readers had paid more attention to his reporting. And this is what he wrote late, late in his life. At the time, I certainly felt that the articles I was writing under my own name were far greater importance than the David Grayson sketches. And to explain why he separated his two personas, he wrote, to confuse the issues with my adventures in such a different field seemed downright folly. So my general takeaway from just those little snippets is it is, I think it's a open question whether he liked the fact that these things were separate or did he think that was the right, it sounds like maybe he thought that was the right thing and it would have been ridiculous to put them together, but maybe there's some disappointment that one aspect of himself at different times was far more popular than the well, other thing he devoted his blood, sweat, and tears to. Well, he didn't identify himself as the writer of the David Grayson books um, willingly. Um, he, he did so only because... Um, of the imposters and because it was leaking out and people were writing uh, letters uh, asking whether it was true that um, Grayson and Baker were the same person. I love that, um, that some of the letters that people wrote to David Grayson were from women with romantic fantasies. <laughs> and many were addressed to David or dear friend. A woman from Illinois wrote, I wish if you are ever in Chicago that you would let me talk with you. But uh, not everybody liked the David Grayson books. Um, H.L. Mencken, the famous curmudgeon, wrote yeah. this. Mr. Grayson's sentimentality often descends to the maudlin. I fail to respond to his enthusiasm for yokels, his artful forgetfulness that the country is dull, dirty, and uncomfortable, and that countrymen are stupid and rascally. Jeez. It's incredibly blunt. No dancing around the issue there. <laughs> Do you, as you have, so let me ask you, when were you introduced to David Grayson and do you have a total unvarnished love of everything that was written under the name or do you agree a touch with Mencken that, well, some of the stuff is 
some of these, he's writing under pressure. He's churning. He's trying to fill news. He's making news copy to fill the pages too. In addition to writing what he wants, he's got to keep going and writing and writing. There was a hint of, I felt, I remembered Arthur Conan Doyle who complained about, I'm sick of, he's sick of writing Sherlock Holmes. I want to do other stuff. People want this David Grayson from me. And I got to keep churning this Sherlock stories out. And this guy's got to keep churning out these David Grayson stories. And Conan Doyle killed him off and then had to bring him back. (laughs) He did, right. Very like, I'm going to kill him. We're all done. And right, had to bring him back. So popular. Um, How did you get introduced to Grayson? And then do you love everything that was written under the name? Or there are certain books or stuff you really love and other stuff you're, eh. Well, um, I spent 19 years as the editor of the Community Weekly newspaper here in Amherst, and uh, we had a column on local history uh, written by the curator of special collections at our local library. And he wrote something about David Grayson and uh, Baker, and that's how I first became um, familiar with him. And at that time, you, you were a full-time journalist for the newspaper? I was a full-time journalist for the newspaper for 32 years. Okay. <laughs> so it was in your in your long stint there. Do you like everything? Have you read everything by Grayson? Or even you haven't read every single book or collection of his stuff? Uh, I've read most of them. There are about eight of the books that I have. Okay. Are there any you really like more than others in his entire collection? I think the first one is the best. Uh, it's called Adventures in Contentment. Uh, and the one I read, I think, was of a later one, Adventures in or Adventures of Understanding, yeah. Adventures in Understanding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. When he died, he was at work on a book called Adventures in Mysticism. Oh, geez. Who knows what? And was any of did any of that get published or it just never showed up? No, that didn't uh, get published. Um, wow. One uh, letter that I really liked was um, he provided uh, spiritual uplift to a lot of people. Um, and there's one letter from a, um, uh, a Scottish man who was a soldier during World War I, and uh, he suffered wounds that um, br- seriously disfigure- disfigured his face, and so he wore a mask, went out in public, and he wrote that um, adventures in... Uh, contentment is his dearest friend. God, I want, is there is there one thing about what about that book resonated for you when when you read about David Grayson and said, "Oh, let me read some David Grayson." What about it particularly resonated with you? Well, I grew up in a city, Washington okay. D.C., um, and um, I I had opportunities to work in cities and um, decided in my late 20s that I preferred to live in the country. I was very much influenced by um, Scott and Helen Nearing, who were sort of apostles of the back to the land movement in the 60s and 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And um, Grayson was sort of a link between them and um, Thoreau, who uh, published Walden in 1854. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I mean, I'm not really a homesteader. Um, I 
have chosen to um, compromise in that, you know, I live on a secluded place in a small town and have a, a garden and, um, but at the same time, um, I have access to libraries and creative people. So it's a, it's been a, <laughs> right. it's been a good, uh, good compromise for me and my wife. Was there a period of time in your youth where, as you thought about, I, I do want to be in a more rural area where you thought I am going to homestead, I'm going to get off the grid. I'm going to live in Montana or like the Hills of West Virginia. No, I didn't start thinking about that until I was in my twenties. <laughs> okay. Fair enough for you. As you, as you thought about, I could work in cities or I could work in a more rural area. What was the appeal of what do you think the appeal was of simple living? What was the disappointment with the city or like, ah, oh, it's not quite right for me. And then why simple living had an appeal? Well, I don't like uh, um, pollution. I don't like cars. Um, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I skyscrapers <laughs> don't, don't like skyscrapers. I, you know, I, I get really nervous whenever I go into New York, which is where I was born. Um, and um, I think I just prefer the quiet and the peacefulness and um, the, the low-key people. And yet, you know, because this is a college town, it's um, got a lot of intelligent people here. Are there a lot of people in Amherst itself that kind of share that same ethos that live on some property that don't spend a lot of time necessarily in the city proper, but like to spend time, you know, on their property with the garden, with animals, things like that? I don't think that there are too many people who have gone as far as I have. Uh, but yeah, there are some. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been on an airplane in 40 years. I don't have a cell wow. phone. <laughs> I've never had a cell phone. I may have been the last journalist in America without a cell phone. <laughs> you might be. We would have to look hard for a, an American journalist with no with no cell phone. That would be tough. I've never had one, and I don't want one. Right. <clears throat> you know, I, I spent a good part of my career on the phone, and when I retired, I thought to myself, I don't want to spend more time on the phone. I don't want people calling me all the time. Do you do you have an answering machine? Yes. Okay. But I, so people no, I can have, I have a landline. Right. And so I people have, can call and leave a message. Yeah. And I have a tablet, you know, as well as uh, the desktop that I'm on right now. But I have never had a a smartphone and don't really want one. So it's interesting. The simple living, simple living feels like it could be a more sedate, calmer existence. And yet also your profession for many years was what I would not say is a sedate. It doesn't have to be a sedate, calm existence. I think many people who go into it are not looking for a sedate, calm existence, which is journalism. Did you ever anywhere along the line, eventually retired, but did you ever anywhere along the line think journalism, it's too much hassle. It's too much drama. Simple living and journalism, how did those interact in your life? 
Well, um, I, I became really integrated into this town and uh, got to know its people and its politics really well. Um, and, you know, partly because I grew up in Washington, I've always been interested in politics. Um, and uh, what was the question again? Oh, I was just wondering, because journalism can be, even in a small town, can be a lot of drama oh, and tension oh, yeah. can collect in journalism. Oh, yeah. And it, 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 was, it was very stressful, um, especially when I was um, the editor of the paper uh, and had to deal with a lot of personnel issues. Um, you know, when I was uh, 49, I went through a transition from being the editor of the Community Weekly to being a reporter for um, both the weekly and the daily papers. Um, but uh, it was very stressful. And, um, you know, about five years uh, before I retired, I started making a list of things I wanted to do in retirement. And uh, that list wound up with about 30 or 35 items on it. Uh, so I was definitely ready. And I, I could also see that newspapers were declining. Um, and um, partly because of that, my work became much more stressful. And um, I was ready to leave when I did. I retired at 62. Did you see readership decline or was it advertising decline Both. or was it simultaneous? Both. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Craigslist had a lot to do with it. Uh, because uh, classified advertising was a major source of revenue for newspapers. Uh, but uh, the newspapers that I worked for are right now um, considerably less um, big and complete and interesting as they used to be. And that's sad. When I tell people that I was the editor of the Amherst Bulletin in the 80s and 90s, you know, people, you know, sort of shrug their shoulders because oh, that's not not such a big deal. <laughs> but back then it was. <laughs> when you look at the way, maybe you don't think about it a ton now, but when you look at the way people process news 20, 30, 40 years ago and the way people are consuming news now, do you see any changes? Do you? Do you see any changes that either you think, oh, that's good or, oh, that's terrible that, that we're processing, we're gathering news like this and we're disseminating news in this way? Well, um, I don't particularly like the word objective, but um, I think that I saw myself as a nonpartisan journalist um, um, with fairness and accuracy as the main goals. Um there was even one point um, when a very contentious vote was coming up in Amherst. I um, publicly announced that I was not going to vote on it because I saw the arguments on both sides and felt like having to choose personally um, how I was going to vote would compromise my ability to be a neutral arbiter of the debate. And how did people take that? I think they appreciated it. And curiously, in my retirement, 
um, I became an elected member of a commission charged with proposing a complete overhaul of Amherst's form of government. And uh, our campaign was ultimately successful, and we now have a completely different form of government than they, we did when I was a journalist. But in doing that, I sort of became identified with um, a certain political point of view. And um, I regret that now. I mean, you know, uh, this past year, I've uh, decided that I'm not going to um, make express any opinions about local politics anymore, because that's where I'm more comfortable. Uh, to me, a lot of local politics feel like they can run on single issues, as opposed to what I think happens at the national level, where things are about your overall stances on values and what are your overall stances on taxes, not this particular tax, not this particular use of this land, not this particular change in the legislation, but overall, we are different. We have different values. In local politics, does it feel that, Did you, do you see that happen too, where people are grouping into sort of shared political values on both sides, or is it still mostly about a particular issue that comes up and gets people angry on one side or another? Yeah, the, um, the, the, the campaign to change the form of government really brought a polarization of two different camps um, in Amherst. And I was hoping that after it was all over that this would stop, but it really hasn't. And um, I think that's unfortunate. Um, and um, I think that uh, that part of the reason that the new form of government hasn't worked as well as I had hoped was is the decline of the newspapers because people aren't as aware of what's going on locally as they used to be. What was what was what was the change that you and others thought was important to make? So what was this huge change? And in your indication that maybe the fact that people aren't as informed, was it sort of vesting more power in people to make individual decisions during the course of a year? What was the change? Okay, very briefly. Uh, we, <laughs> we used to have a the main decision making body was a group of 240 people called a town meeting many of whom weren't really elected because they ran without opposition. And now we have a 13-member town council, um, some of whom are elected in competitive elections. And I don't really want to go into too much more about this. I'd rather talk about simple living. Fair enough. Well, let's let's abandon the politics and ask, what do your in-retirement how much were you working when you retired? Like how many hours a, how many hours a week were you working and how did your life change when you finally said this part is done? I'm now going to now going to be it. I'm going to be at home more doing these 30 some projects I put on my list. Yeah, when I retired, I publicly announced that I wasn't going to be involved in Amherst politics anymore and then, you know, 5 years later got, <laughs> you got pulled more involved than I ever had been. Um Yeah, um I um, I really enjoy retirement, and uh, I have a lot of interests. Um, I'm involved uh, with uh, three different churches here locally, um, and um, 
I, you know, enjoy reading and um, I'm married to the same person I married 42 years ago, which these days qualifies as an alternative lifestyle, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> and uh, we en still enjoy each other's presence and I have friends and life is pretty good. How do you affiliate? That's interesting. How do you affiliate with three churches? I now I know this happened, so I'm in. I'm in. The, I came from Southern California, where religion wasn't. I mean, you talked about religion, but a lot of people were not. If it were church going, it just wasn't a big deal. Here, there's a church. I don't know how it is in Amherst. There's a different church every block, even in the new suburban areas. There's some giant church on every corner. And I feel like people, oftentimes people go to one church and maybe they shop around sometimes and they're dissatisfied, but affiliated with three churches, are you just to pick one? Well, um, I became a member of a um, congregational church with my wife uh, when we moved to Amherst in 1984, and I've officially been a member of there. Um, and... Um, there is uh, another church in a town outside of um, Amherst um, that uh, where the pastor is a close personal friend, and that's much smaller and has some aspects of it that I like. So I like to go there and support them. And then I'm also involved with the uh, local Episcopal church, which is the, um, the church that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. Is that is is it? Do you feel it's typical when you talk to other people in Amherst or people in your social circle that people do? Well, I belong to this one, but there's some reason why the kids like these kids, or we know these people, so we go there, and then we do a charity that involves us here. Or do other people really settled in one church there? Most people settle in one church, but most people aren't churched at all. You know, as you right. know, um, nationwide, uh, far fewer people have been going to church over the past 20 years. And this is something that accelerated during the pandemic. So, you know, I, I went to a, a service recently um, in which there were only six people in the pews. Oh, that it's easy. I mean, when I go to, depending on the synagogue you go to and the night you go, sometimes it's 200 people because there's some life, life cycle event, but then literally eight hours later or 12 hours later at another service. Yeah. You'll struggle to get the 10, the necessary 10. <laughs> um, is that so? Do you, do you think about, do you think about that a lot? Do you think, do you have a strong opinion one way or the other about, well, is it good or bad that people are, are identifying more secular? They say they're spiritual, but they just cannot connect to any particular organized religion, any existing religion. Well, I have come to accept that with all of the three churches I'm involved with, there are going to be things that work for me and things that don't work for me. And I try to focus on the positive, uh, the things that do work for me. Um, my wife is uh, very heavily involved in the church that we joined um, 38 years ago. And um, she likes it when I go to church with her and that's one reason why I go. Also, uh, the, uh, the the minister is a really good preacher. So, you know, I, I, I there is a um, there's a certain sacrifice of community in my Sunday morning activities because I'm spreading myself sort of thin. 
but I'm not going to abandon my close friend who uh, um, doesn't get too many people in his <laughs> church, and I'm not going to abandon my wife's church. So right, so just split your time. You're just going to split your time. I've got of a rotation. <laughs> um, are you glad? Is there anything having read widely about all kinds of? big cities and small towns across America. Is there any other place besides Amherst that today still holds some allure for you? Like, I wish I could have moved there or boy, I wonder if, you know, I'm still, I'm still feeling great in five years from now, whether we wouldn't pack up and go to whatever. Well, Vermont looks pretty good. Um, Vermont. I have a close friend who lives there. Um, I don't know. Um, I like living in a college town. Um, um, I'm happy where I am. I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to stay here for the rest of my life. Um, I'm, I'm a little unusual in that, um, from age 30 on, I've had one spouse, one house and one employer. Yeah, you are. Oh, wait, are you, do you fit? I'm reading a book about generations right now. I am at the end of, gen, I'm nestled safely in the middle of Generation X. Are you, de, do you Do you feel a lot of association with the generational cohort of baby boomers? Where do you fall? Oh yeah, I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1950. And so the, again, that's the whole, the company man, the, the pension plans, all that stuff about people had the dependability of, I am going to have an employer. And obviously for all kinds of perfectly reasonable reasons, today's employees don't expect that at all because that doesn't exist anymore where you could just stay with one employer forever. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, it's a real problem that, um, people starting out in their twenties, um, don't know how they're going to afford retirement. They don't know how they're going to afford to buy a house. Um, that's a real problem. Uh, there aren't Do you, the, the number of people, the number of children in the Amherst schools has declined dramatically in the past couple of years because young families can't afford to live here. I was going to I was going to ask about that because you get one influx who are whatever the every generation of teenagers who pour into the college and that's one perspective but again a lot of times in college towns if the cost of living goes up it becomes a weird thing where the people who have been there a long time can afford to own there's people who pour in every year to rent as students and then yeah families can dwindle if the if the cost so Amherst cost of living has gone up and and since the pandemic there have been um a lot of people who work remotely who have you know done things like sold um brownstones in Brooklyn for 2 million dollars and buy a house here for 500,000 dollars and think they've gotten a great deal right uh, do you see um, – so if if the number of, ch of child-having families right now is not huge, do you just see that continuing and continuing? What do you think in Amherst would happen where there would be an influx of people in the middle class or the upper middle class who could who, – who would come in again and bring a, another family boom to the town? I don't know. I I think it's a problem when – you know, and, and there are no children in the churches that I – are very few – children in the churches that I go to. Yeah. Um, 
bringing it back full circle, thinking about Grayson, um, thinking about your, your lifetime in journalism, your dabbling in politics. Um, I feel like there's so many themes that run in Grayson that probably still resonate today. Does anybody, do you ever try to sell, have you ever tried to sell anybody on David Grayson? Nobody's reading David Grayson today. So if somebody was like, I don't, I'm busy. Do I want to read it? Have you ever sold it? And what is your pitch for? You should give, you should read a little bit of this. I, I actually uh, wrote a, a query to Smithsonian Magazine saying, you know, I think this person is really interesting. I'd, I'd write a, a, a piece for you, but I never heard from them. Nobody's what? ever heard of David Grayson. I know. <laughs> And unfair. So this is the again, um, when you read a set of books that were collected in the early 20th century, so 1918, and then republished in the mid 1920s, World War One has happened. So they're post World War One. But there's all these people in there that were so popular, and nobody knows about today. Yeah, in uh, and it's it's bizarre. In um, in 1927, the uh, students of um, of uh, Wellesley College were polled, and David Grayson was uh, voted one of their six most popular authors. What the what? <laughs> but how how far afield would you have to find um, early uh, early American literature folks in college for the word for the name David Grayson to resonate? You could just wander around asking, do you know who David? Have you ever read anything by David Grayson? He's about in this period. He wrote about this. Nope, never heard of him. It's really fun reading the letters that people wrote to David Grayson. Um, um, w- w- one letter began, I want to tell you my troubles. And another began, I am just reaching out blindly for something that will deaden pain. I shall not even mail this letter, but she did. Yeah. And another one said, Dear David Grayson, can you not and will you not write to my husband and see if you can convince him that I am not insane? What is it's the kind of I mean, it's not even the stuff people ask Dear Abby questions. So whoever stood in that span of Dear Abby, usually there's some constructive question they need help with. That the fact that they were writing these this confidant to somebody, I don't know. I don't know that David Grayson, you would you would know better having read all the stuff, whether the character of David Grayson was asking people to write stuff in. So people just felt some sort of sense of connection and just poured this stuff out to him, even though the character never asked for it. I mean, the characters wrote about stuff. One person wrote, um, he he becomes closer to being a real Christian than anyone I know. And the president of the Mormon Church bought up 400 copies of the first David Grayson book and gave them to all the members of the Tabernacle Choir. In truth, David uh, Ray Standard Baker was not a churchgoer. <laughs> but uh, people saw him as, um, you know, someone wrote uh, to Grayson, there came to me in a crowded subway a vision of clear skies and broad green acres, a sense of the joy of possessing a bit of Mother Earth, a feeling of kinship with a soul that had cut loose and sought nature's healing. 
it feels like at the very least, uh, for understandable reasons, his work would still resonate with homesteaders and simple living people and people who were tired of the hustle and bustle of the city and the anonymity of the city. Because, again, that one essay I read of his was really about how even his his wife is more practical. So the 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 character of the wife is sort of like dismissive of these people around here. I mean, what do you need to go talking to these people for? And he just, oh, let me ask all these questions. And he just again discovers the wonder in the boring, tedious, over busy, stressful environment in, in the urban world. I can imagine that attitude. And for me personally, I think it's easily it's a model anybody could follow. Being curious about other people and asking them questions. And then making yourself feel better that way about being in kinship with other people is something people could follow. So maybe the Graysonians need to come back if they have fallen out of faith. Well, you know, uh, a lot of people left uh, cities um, um, during the pandemic. And, uh, um, you know, the, the population of Vermont, for example, has uh, grown dramatically in the past three years. Um, and um, with it, uh, housing prices. And... Um, um, I think that there would be a uh, an interest in uh, David Grayson if uh, uh, I don't know if the books are still in print. Um, I love uh, my old copies of them. You know, my uh, my copy of uh, Adventures in Contentment. You know, still is in one of the original uh, copies. Yes. So originally probably came with a jacket, but that has long withered away. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's too much David Grayson online uh, in, in, in Kindles. No. Uh, but it is, again, David Grayson stuff, but it's interesting. Some of the books are available on Gutenberg. Some of the books have been copied and put on Internet Archive. So they are all out there online. I think everything written is easily available to be read. Um, and yeah, people could get old used copies if they wanted, which I prefer. I prefer to read it in book form. So I do too. I, 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 I read newspapers online, but I can't read books online. 